Welcome to We Are Meaningful, a podcast where we transform the anonymous experiences of black and brown talent into powerful audio narratives. Each month, we center the dialogue around a common theme, providing you, our listeners, with the tools and resources you need to help navigate, grow, and thrive in corporate spaces. Our stories, experiences, and our voices are meaningful. We are meaningful. Hi, everyone. This is Crystal. And this is Krista. And today we're joined by Shelby Birch. Shelby is an unapologetic queer Black femme, spoken word poet, published author, educator, and DEI consultant and training facilitator. She has competed in national and international poetry competitions and has been featured across the U.S. and South Africa. Shelby especially has a passion for social justice advocacy for marginalized communities, where she spent three years immersed in domestic and international grassroots service work with City Year Washington, D.C. and Peace Corps South Africa. She is currently a graduate student at Georgia State University studying public policy and women's gender and sexuality studies. And she's been my friend since high school. What up, Shelby? Hey, Hi. girl. <laughs> <laughs> woo woo. Ah, yes. DP. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I kind of feel like the third wheel today, but it's fine. I can accept that. Um, you, Crystal, <laughs> on all of these podcasts, I swear, Shelby, this is the first time, or actually, no, exactly. maybe just like Don't the lie. third time in how, however many guests that we've had, Crystal knows everybody. And I'm just like, hey, we're friends too, right? So today it's like, yes, odd DP. Yes, this is Krista's time to shine. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. I can step back. It's totally cool. But we love you, Crystal. Um, we love you, thank Crystal. You. We love you. Thank you. But there's one thing that you said in your intro that really struck me. So I have actually studied abroad in South Africa. No way. In Cape wow. Town. Yes. Yes. So I was actually working at um, Fazika Secondary School. Okay. So it was in the township of Gugaletu. Okay. So that was a really amazing experience, especially to see the disparity between those who have and those who don't. Yeah. And I will definitely say that through the work um, that I did in South Africa, that was really when I became able to see what racism looks like mm. and began to notice it and accept it when it was happening to me in the States. Because mm. in South Africa, it was more blatant than I had ever noticed before. So when I came back, I was like, wait a minute, hold up. It was, it was like that show. I don't know if y'all have seen it. Unwoke. Oh, no, it's not Unwoke. It's Woke. Woke. Yes. Mm, oh, from, from new the new show on Hulu. I haven't started it yet. Yeah. Yes. It's like you see it and then you can't unsee it. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I totally relate to that. Did they consider you black when you were over there or did they um, consider you colored um, or Indian? Were you black over there? I was definitely black. Okay. And the, the weird thing was that there were three black women on this trip. There was one woman who was lighter skinned, so she would have been colored. There mm -hmm. was another woman who accepted, you know, like, this is my skin tone. You're like, this is who I am. But she was really, um, how can I say? Um, she was very aware of her blackness. Like, yeah. let me say that. So yeah. the second person was a little different. So the second person was like my complexion. 
However, she had Native American in her family Mm -hmm. and she made it very clear that that's how she identified. So it was like, even though she experienced racism, she didn't notice it because she didn't accept it. If that makes mm. any sense oh, at all. Oh, so it was no, just kind of weird. Yeah, it was like this weird experience of like, I know I'm darker skinned. People are treating me as such. So I'm noticing it. Then the lighter skinned woman, she's noticing it, even though she is considered colored. So she's treated a bit better. Mm-hmm. And then the one lady who's like oblivious. Yeah, South Africa will do that to you. Yeah. South Africa will absolutely do that too. Um, I actually served in Limpopo. So on the other side of the country, I did visit Cape Town. It was beautiful. Um, but I lived in rural South Africa. Um, so okay. I, I spent a lot of time, um, with, with, uh, the Sepeti, um, ethnic group. Uh, but yeah, unpacking race or their, uh, their perceptions and their caste systems for race is similar to the United States, but different. And I think it just shows the fluidity in how our understanding of race and ethnicity really evolves and changes depending on where we go. So a lot of folks, especially within my cohort, went through a bit of an identity crisis over there mm-hmm. because yeah. um, they were being misracialized, if that's a thing, um, and having to reckon with their sense of what how they see themselves and how they identify themselves, but also how society did and couldn't do anything about it. Um, so yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, girl. Like I was with my the people in my cohort and I was standing with them at a restaurant and the lady like completely ignored me. Like I yep. was not oh, even yeah. with them. And I was just like, what the heck oh, is yeah. happening? Oh, yeah. I <sighs> was uh, I I have stories. I know that's for another podcast, but yes. especially being against <laughs> like other white volunteers and having to prove my Americanness. Mm-hmm. Another yeah. podcast for another time. But, you know, no, that, that's awesome that, that you had that um, experience in South Africa. Yeah, well, I'm volunteering you to come back, just so you know. Oh, dope. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm here for it. (laughs) But we are excited to get into this conversation about our narrative this month, which is called Stunted. And it really focuses on growth for women of color, specifically black and brown women in corporate spaces. And all the things that we do to try to be noticed, to try to... um, get the visibility that we need to move to the next level and how we are really chopped down to size, how we are, how the the carrot keeps moving, the goalpost keeps moving for us. So let's go ahead and play the narrative. Hey girl, nothing, I just, I don't know. I just wanted to call to you and talk about my day. I mean, it's just foolishness, as per usual. Yeah, yeah, it's work. I talked with my manager, again, about what growth looks like. I mean, taking a course, opportunity for advancement, something. And it's just, it's just the same old BS. It's coming. We'll get to it. Focus on mastering your current role. We'll see what happens in the next year. I've been mastered my role. And you think after so many years of giving them gold, like improving the team and offering innovative solutions, pioneering our org's direction, they want to not even reward, but honor the commitment and 
the work that I've given them. And every time we go into a per- performance conversation, I, I have no idea what I'm being measured against. So no one is tracking my successes because we don't even get goals at the beginning of the year. I don't know my benchmarks, my objectives. So how are you gonna give me a performance review when we didn't set the bar prior to me performing? I know, I I know, I know. But it's just interesting, listen to this. Two weeks ago, that same guy that I helped train years back got promoted. Like remember, I onboarded him into a role below me and now I'll be reporting to him in a like dotted line kind of way. But that's what really gets me. Like you trust me to train others, but continue to ask me to master my role before we can talk about growth. And I've thought about my goals. I've shared them broadly. I've done my research, gotten additional credentials and certifications outside of that team. I've even drafted career roadmaps. I'm like, all I need is a thumbs up, help me get there. But at this point, I really just think they're lazy. They don't want to grow me. So it feels like I'm working towards nothing. Like I want to be inspired and driven and curious. And it's hard for me to do that when I can't see what I'm working towards or even talk about it in a real way. Like I don't even have that space. So I'm stuck and it's frustrating because I want to be better for myself, but the people around me don't want that for me. Like how can you grow in a space that either doesn't believe in you or doesn't want to nurture you. I'm in cement, like I need soil and light and water and purpose. So Shelby, after having the opportunity to hear the stunted narrative, what were your thoughts and reactions? So this narrative, fortunately and unfortunately, resonated with me. Um, fortunately, because there is a sense of solidarity and community and common ground with these shared experiences, right? Um, which shows that we're not alone in these incredibly isolating workplace environments. Um, so the feelings of invisibility and exhaustion are valid. But it's unfortunate at the same time because we're still at the brunt of these toxic narratives that continue to be replicated and endured by us. Right. Um, So I guess I wanted to start off with some data points from a study about women in the workplace in 2019. Um, Currently, um, there are a record 37 leading fortune, 37 women leading Fortune 500 firms. But of these women, just three are women of color. Um, For every 100 men promoted to manager, just 58 black women are promoted to the same role. When looking at the total workforce in the U.S., Black women account for 7% of the population, but make up 12% of minimum wage earnings. And of executive level leaders today, 21% are women and just 1% are Black women. So I wanted to set the stage. Um, These statistics are very startling, right? Um, And it immediately reminded me of the quote. I'm sure that we've all heard this. Um, You have to work twice as hard to get half as much or to go half as far. Mm -hmm. And my earliest recollection of that was in elementary school. Like I was groomed very early to struggle or to expect it and groomed to feel subordinate before feeling important 
or empowered. Um, but it's also these conflicting narratives at the same time for women, because we're also told at the same time that we can do anything. You know, women are the world and um, femme fatale and all these different narratives. And yet it won't be good enough, even if you can do everything. And as speaking from the experience of a black woman. Um, so I take an intersectional lens and it's saying that you can't do it. You can't do anything, right? Um, even if you can do everything, you still, you still can't do it because of your gender and because of your race. So these are the things that are, um, just, just popping up for me. Um, and as a policy student, I, I kind of wanted to um, apply what I'm learning <laughs> and really share some facts, right? Um, because all of this is connected to white supremacy. Um, there is a relationship um, with Black people to work and capitalism, but more importantly, deservingness. Um, and to understand that we have to go like back in history with the Industrial Revolution because like it changed the economic landscape for the United States, but it also affected policy. So we went from having policy that was highly racialized or we had like racialized ideologies and values and then it shifted to work. Right. So we hear the narrative of like pull yourself from your bootstraps. Right. So to obtain like Social Security, to obtain benefits, you had to be working. And you needed to be considered deserving to receive these benefits, right? Um, and it didn't play, and, and it played out differently with different levels of public assistance. So I bring in welfare, right? It is highly racialized and stigmatized. That's where we get the welfare, the welfare queens. And who are these welfare queens? They're um, predominantly black women. And we're not deserving of receiving these um, benefits, right? And these are still tropes that are still playing out today. So we have to work twice as hard just to go twice as far just to show that we're deserving of this, right? So I'll stop right there. I know that was a lot, but it all goes back to this deservingness and Black women and women of color um, having to to prove themselves extra hard in the workplace. Um and it and it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it sucks. Yeah. Yeah, it really does and we we talk about that a lot throughout the year, right? Or we've talked about it a lot. And I think that's one of the layers of like the emotional labor and the psychological safety that we otherwise don't have in the workplace that a lot of other people do. Um besides worrying about how well you're doing at your job, the fact that you don't really fit in or maybe you don't have a sense of community, now you also have to be responsible for driving your own growth and basically carving out those opportunities for yourself, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that that can get really, really tough with all of these different barriers or speed bumps that we're talking about. But what happens when other people have a path that's elevated in comparison to yours, mm. right? So when we talk about nepotism, like how would you define nepotism and what role do you think it, it plays in hindering growth opportunities for black and brown women? Yeah. So nepotism is basically just, it's, it's favoritism based on kinship, based on just family rela relations. And it, it, it extends past your family. It's just who you know and having connections. Um, but in this context, mm -hmm. um, it is a white supremacist tactic um, used to preserve pedigree. 
it's a form of gatekeeping. Mm. Um, so when unpacking nepotism, we have to constantly ask ourselves who are likely to be the beneficiaries of this favoritism and who is it designed for? Right. Um, and when remembering how these things play out, it, it goes to like the psychological standpoint, as you stated. Um, it's a form of implicit bias. We find it easier to hire people or to get along with people we inherently feel comfortable with. And we feel most mm-hmm. comfortable with people who remind us of ourselves. So it is hard. So bring it back to us. It is hard to um, build relationships with bosses and our coworkers. Um, it is hard to get hired or just to get our foot in the door because we literally don't look like them. And because we don't look like them, um, they feel either a sense of threat, um, threat or just some sort of disconnect. I know we all have stories about um, the boss who favors the intern who does a mediocre job, but because they went to the same college or rep the same football team that, you know, they can rub shoulders and get beers and stuff. Whereas, you know, me, I hate football. I I probably didn't go to their university. You know what I mean? And it's harder for me to build mm-hmm. that connection and build that rapport. So it extends, it, it, it starts as early as the interview process, but it extends as we're even in these spaces because we all know that professionalism is one thing, but building those interpersonal relationships with our bosses um, takes us to another level and we're not able to foster those relationships as much. So nepotism is, is dangerous. It can be very dangerous for us if we don't look like them. For sure. And that inability to build authentic relationships Mm -hmm. is seriously a barrier. And a couple of things that you've said um, in the first and second question about policies and about systems Those things are so important because we can talk to each other and we can try to change people's hearts and minds and they can try their best to do the right thing. But the bottom line is that we have to break the systems. We have to get rid of the policies and rebuild them to make sure that we are building them with a lens that includes everyone, that it's not focused on preserving legacy or Mm -hmm. preserving pedigree but actually figuring out how can we get to a place where we are realizing equity and that we're realizing justice. Absolutely. Well, snaps. Hello. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, The solution mic drop interview over. Like, <laughs> no, seriously, like everything. I look at things from a macro, from a macro level, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's one thing to just say like, man, like I'm not moving up. Like why, why is it so hard for me to, to, to make it to the next level? Why do I keep hitting these glass ceilings? And it's because the system was literally designed and made for us to be stunted, to not like to always exactly. see it, but never touch it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. And it makes me ask these questions is there room for black and brown women to to participate in these systems that were nine that were designed to exclude us? Like how how do we break that? Um, so even because we're still trying to break being a welfare welfare queen, we, we black women and women of color mm-hmm. are seen in extreme binaries. We're either yes. really good 
or we're not. There is no space for nuance. There is no space for growth. There is no space for development. Is either we know it or we don't. We don't get that same um, um, grace that our other counterparts do, mm-hmm. right? So it's kind of a recipe for failure. Like there are some dire consequences that come with these expectations. And I feel a bit subhuman in that sense that we don't get that same grace and that same mercy to learn, to grow so we can move up. Is either we know it or we don't. We're great at what we do, or or we're disposable. Mm-hmm. But I want to slide in yeah. here with some truth real fast because mm. this welfare yeah. queen thing has come up a couple times, and I want to be clear. And I don't think I have to be clear about this with our listeners because I feel like our listeners understand what's going on. But I just need to say it out loud that things like affirmative action have benefited white women. Come on. Programs like welfare have benefited poor white families. Come on. Yes, there are other people from other identity groups on these programs or on this assistance, but the people who are benefiting most are white. So just to be clear, it sounds ridiculous. Absolutely. This whole welfare queen situation. I'm glad you say it. And I think almost that stereotype was created in order to distract from like the true group that benefits or that reaps the most reward from those programs. Right. And it's so interesting because most of the time that the people that you see who are like uh, denying or like insulting people who are on those programs or want to get rid of them are white people. And a lot of times their energy is derivative of the fact that they think the only people benefiting from them are black and brown people. And it's like, no, that's actually your kinfolk. <laughs> that's your people. <laughs> and if, if we if, if that data was probably more like broadly published, um, uh, they would have a they would sing a different tune. I'm very, very, very sure. Yeah. They'd be like, oh, well, wait a minute. And, and I bring that up not to, you know, uh, speak down on folks who need public assistance, but. But to show just we stigmatize, we stigmatize groups and it goes to the policy. Right. And how we always are at the brunt of these stereotypes, of these stigmatizations. And it affects us in very, very real ways, more negatively us. Right. Than the the true beneficiaries of these things. So thank you so much for um, adding that context um, to to why I brought that up. Yeah. And leading into the next question, Crystal, I think more than kind of taking the the negativity that's surrounded by the stereotype, right? People don't always understand the true implications of the stereotype. Mm. An example is, yes, my dad was a janitor. My dad was in lawn care, right? And nobody looks at that and actually sees, oh, that means that she has an inequitable access to the networks that we do. That means nepotism probably doesn't exist for her. Instead, they take the trope Mm. of the stereotype and they emphasize that. And they don't really attribute it to the fact that actually growth looks different for me and many other black and brown women because we don't have access to those Mm -hmm. things. And instead they try to make it about performance or whatever, but it's like, you were so quick to like make a joke and carry that trope and create a parody. I don't understand why you don't get to talk about like the professional implications that come with it too. Krista, you bring up something, you bring up meritocracy. I uh, just kind of, in the sense of like, you know, or I feel like that is America's scapegoat, (laughs) right? Like you, like you, like, 
you got to work hard. Right. And because I worked hard, you know, I will gain access Mm -hmm. to these things and I will gain these privileges. We love to hide behind meritocracy when we don't really get to the brunt of these highly racist, highly cishet, all the jargons, things that these oppressive systems, right, that we're trying to dismantle. So, yeah, thank you for calling that out. So much like what we're talking about, right, our our networks and We've had some conversation earlier today a a little bit about nepotism and the fact that it plays into legacy, Mm. right? The cool thing is that we actually um, are reaping the benefits of the work that lots of black and brown women have done before us, right? Creating space, creating opportunity for us to have access to the roles that we have now. Um, What happens once you've like laid the foundation is that now we actually are in charge of Mm. building, Right. So Shelby doesn't walk into a place and everybody's like, oh, my gosh, she's a birch. She's a birch. She's from you remember that birch (laughs) who owned the thing and the thing. She's a birch like nobody's doing that. And a lot of that weight is on our shoulders. Right. And it, it kind of creates this like survivalist mentality for us. There's a quote that says, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Right. And it's an all too accurate parallel to corporate America. I know some people might think it's a bit simplistic and those people are probably eating at the table every night, every day, three times a day without fear that they'll never have access to the table. Um, But it really is that parallel to corporate America. Once we've secured our seat at the table, how do we make sure that we stay off the menu and get to eat for ourselves and build this legacy for our own communities? Yeah. Um <sighs> You say so many juicy, um, uh, amazing things, Kristen. Oh my goodness! Um, so, <laughs> yeah, just uh, you know, like how are we? How, first off, I, I'd like to, I guess, counter with like how are we resisting these systems, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Of that that we have to participate in. Like, I, I want to ask it from from that point of view, right? How can we resist? Sure. How can we do something different? How can we? Um, how do we stay true to our integrity and our values like while we're still in these places? And I I don't know. I really think it comes down to finding community and safe spaces and mentorship and sponsorships. I know this has been said, but it's just so important. Um, uh, I like we have to create these safe spaces. We have to go out and and find the people and we have to bring them in. Um I was talking with with a friend um who who just started um her uh her grad program. Shout out to my friend in Boston. But she says that she was working on kind of like a manual or a guide um to give to um entry level black professionals because there's no we have all of these programs to get us in the door, but there are no substantial programs to keep us in 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 these environments because we leave. <laughs> we 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 leave because we realize we um we didn't understand that this is the game that we have to play. We didn't understand about code switching. We didn't understand that like there are um bureaucratic um politics that we have to play and adhere to. Um we don't under we don't understand how how to play the game but play it in a way that um is true to us. And she's working on that and I think that is amazing. So we need resources like that. Um but I think 
what <laughs> what I keep getting drawn to is like sometimes we also have to embrace our inner white man, yo. Like we have to ask ourselves, like how would Chuck advocate for himself or negotiate his salary? Like we gotta have to um, embrace uh, embrace. Uh, I guess kind of like um, alter egos just to, I guess, like mind trick ourselves to remember that we should be in these places and that we can advocate for ourselves and that we are deserving of these things, too. So I I know that was kind of all over the place, but um, community. Um, making sure that we that we stay connected with each other, um, that we use that nepotism right for for us on us, that we continue and build and create our own lines of legacy, um, and we embrace our inner white man because he's definitely he's doing okay. <laughs> it worked out for him. So look. <laughs> Yes, that's probably some of the best advice that I've ever gotten. I was so like doe eyed. I had like my little spiral notebook and my conference pen and I was at some conference event and I was like, what advice would you have for your younger self? Um, And she was like, embrace your inner white man. Empower yourself to feel just like a white man, feel just as confident, just as intellectual, just as like powerful in a room full of people where you shouldn't feel Mm. that way. (laughs) And Ever since I heard that, I was like, oh, I guess I could try that. And it works. All the time. It does. (laughs) W-C-D. What would Chuck do? What would who? Chuck. Cut out. W-W-C-D. What would Chuck do? What What would would Chuck Chuck do? do? (laughs) What would Chuck do? (laughs) He probably goes by Charlie or Chad, but yes. Yeah. He's not going by Chuck in the office. (laughs) He's like, all my friends call me Chad. I cannot even deal. But something that you brought up, I think, was super important, which was about how we as black and brown people, we think about getting in the door. But then there's this gap of once we're there, what do we do? Mm -hmm. And I want to speak to organizations as well, because I think organizations often are only thinking about hiring. So they're only thinking about how can we attract more black and brown people to our organization? But then they're short sighted because then they aren't thinking about how do we keep them in our organization? How do we progress them within our organization? So if you are listening um, and you're at the table and you have the ability to build these systems and policies and practices, consider what your organization is doing or not doing that is either having black and brown people come into the organization and leave or leave out the window. So they come through the door, they leave out the window. Or you have black and brown people who have been at your organization for 10 plus years in the same role. Mm. What are you doing to create visibility and opportunity for those people, especially if they are outperforming the other people on their teams? Why are they still there in the same role? Period. Thank you, Shelby. <laughs> Thank you, Shelby. Because I'm like, Krista, where are you? I'm so, I wasn't sure if you were asking us. And I was like, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't. <laughs> so it's to be like a pium, pium, pium moment. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so oh, that's the crowd going crazy for your, for your uh-huh, mic drop. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so Shelby, we really enjoyed this conversation with you today. And I'm sure our listeners want to know where they can find you online. So tell us more about where we can find you. 
Yeah, um, thank you for having me. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at Shelby Birch, um, my first name, last name, um, LinkedIn and Facebook, um, same Shelby Birch. Um, and that's really it. So. Well, I'm going to be following you, girl. I'm already following you on IG and I think on LinkedIn, too. Maybe I'll connect with you on Facebook as well. Please, please do. <laughs> <laughs> I will not. I don't have a Facebook, though. <laughs> That's not a bad thing. You're not like in the Matrix or anything like that. So stay outside the Matrix as much as you can. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the We Are Meaningful podcast. Follow us on Instagram at wearemeaningful.co and visit our website to learn more about our community and how you can get involved. We're excited to hear your thoughts on today's episode. Talk to you next week.